So, you know, we can try and challenge external views, but we've got to look inwardly and say, well, what are we actually doing to try and make that difference? You know, are we doing it right for the child or are we doing it because my ego is going to be impacted because it's going to hurt me? How am I going to look? There are more Asians involved in football than you would expect. There are nowhere near as many Asians involved in football as there should be. Join us on the Our Game 2 podcast as we celebrate the ones that are and discuss the ones that aren't. Hello, Meezy and Kevin are now joined by Shin Orjla, who has several different hats. So, Shin, first of all, how are you doing? You okay? Yeah, all good, thanks. Would have been better with a victory yesterday, but uh, wasn't to be. Okay, so let's just set the scene. You're a West Bromwich Albion supporter. Yeah. Okay, so what's happening this season? What's going wrong for you guys? What's going wrong? <laughs> it's what's going wrong for every other year for, for us Albion fans. We're coming quite used to it, but I think um, we, ju- we just struggled. I think recruitment probably wasn't where it, where it should have been over the summer. Um, and I think, you know, we, we kind of bundled over the line in the championship last year. I think when fans went out to stadiums due to COVID, our form has been really terrible. Um, luckily, Brentford did us a favour and couldn't finish the job off last year, which meant we got promoted. So I think very much we had a championship squad. Uh, interestingly enough, I think the signing of the summer under bells and whistles was Grady Dean Garner from West Ham. And I yeah, think you know we really see uproar at West Ham because if the, the fans like one of their own, and all of a sudden one of our own gets sold, it was just kind of like end of the world for us. He was he was quality for us last year, and he, he lit up the championship. Could he make the step step up? We think he can, and I think it was a lot of doom and gloom, wasn't it, uh, down at West Ham, where West Ham were going to get relegated, and they've sold this. Uh, youngster who's come through the ranks, you know, for pittance as it were. But it seems as though West Ham got the good end of the bargain and you've only got to see how well you guys are doing. So I think our recruitment, we were always limited in terms of what we could do. And I think the expansive football we played in the championship at Premier League level, you just get picked off, don't you? If you get chances, you know, we were three nil up against Chelsea. We should have been home and host. But that, that game ended in uh, in defeat as well. So yeah, it's just just not Forum for us, and I think since Sam Allardyce has come in, he's tightened the ship over the last few games, but we can't just finish off our chances that we're creating. So we're kind of the nearly men, playing some decent football, um, but we'll just wait and see um, how it pans out with a few bit of luck. We probably could have been about six or seven points better off in the last few games. So we've only got ourselves to blame, really. Okay, here's a question for you. Who would win... Um... Billich's West Bromwich Albion or Big Sam's West Bromwich Albion? Oh, that's a good question. I would say Billich's. I'd say it'd be a tough game trying to break them down, but at least he went to attack games, would be a bit open at the back, whereas under Allardyce, we're not clinical at the front end. So I know which one I would prefer. I would prefer Billich's football. Okay, so do you think it was a mistake to get rid of Bilic and get Allardyce in? Because the results, I mean, performances may have improved, results haven't. So it looks yeah. like you're going to be, unfortunately, back in the Championship next season regardless. 
Yeah, I think it was a bit it's difficult because Slav, we were lucky to have him. We were privileged when, you know, in the championship, we've signed this manager who's, you know, taking teams to semi-finals or quarter-finals of the World Cups, whatever it was then. Um, so we were really privileged to, to have him there. Was he always going to be here for the long term? Probably not. Um, I think before he got sacked, I think it was, um, we got a nil-nil, I think it was away at Man City and the players were playing for him and he thought, hang on, We've just snuffed one of the biggest teams, uh, you know, in the country, scoring goals-wise. But I think he just looked a bit of a, a beaten man um, in, in probably the four or five games coming up to that. Um, there were clearly things he wasn't happy with and, yeah, it was inevitable. So I think it was the right decision. Uh, a few years ago, we probably stalled on making that decision. It cost us with relegation. So bringing Sam Allardyce in, Although he was everyone's cup of tea, everyone recognised that he would give us a fighting chance to stay up, and it's just not quite worked at the moment. The dream's not over yet, but I think it was the right decision, kind of at that time, to give us a chance coming into the January transfer window as well. Fair enough. Listen, best of luck for you guys for the rest of the season. So, as far as football goes, as far as I'm aware, you've got three hats. So, do you want to tell us about those hats? Right, the first hat, okay, is. Um, I was part of a part of the Up and Albion um, supporters group, so I'm, I'll chair that group. Uh, that's been set up for a number of years now. Uh, we all know the history link with West Bromwich Albion and the three degrees, you know, like equality and diversity. We embrace that as a football club, but I think one of one of the issues we've always recognised is um, kind of South Asian representation within the game. And if you look at where that club is based, it's predominantly. South Asian communities, but it's never been quite reflective in the stands or even in the pitches, but we're all well aware of you know the ongoing issues. So we formed the club just to kind of get in the hearts and mind of the local um, people to, you know, to say, you know, a lot of people would support your Liverpools and Man Uniteds and your Leeds United because that's what was on match of the day way back in the 70s and 80s. So... You know, they do recognise the likes of Sill Regis and Laurie Cunningham. So we just tried to say, OK, if West Brom isn't your first club, let it be your second club. You know, come and sample some atmosphere at the stadium. It's, there was a lot of, um, as we all know, you know, all, all the, the bad news in the 70s and 80s around trouble, um, you know, fighting at games, you know, racism. It's not a safe environment. So we just tried to show people that actually it's a safe environment. Things have moved on since those dark days. It still exists. But it's very, very minimal. You know, people go there and it's like an entertainment industry now, isn't it? So the clubs are doing what they can to do that. So that's the first hat, is kind of um, leading the supports group to increase the awareness of the football club within the local communities. But it's also tied in with a lot of community stuff as well. So this isn't just about going on a coach to an away game. It's actually trying to help the local communities generally in society as well. So I'd say that's kind of... Um, <clears throat> The, the first cap um, through the work through the up now being I got involved with the fans for diversity campaign which Anwar Odin ex professional one of the first Asian uh, representation in the game you know he, he I think he was at West Ham wasn't he and Dagenham and Redbridge he's seen them you know got them promoted through the playoffs as well so got involved in the campaign for the fans for diversity to kind of support us with what we're doing as up now being um, we got involved with other like-minded supporter groups up and down the country. You know, we've got a really good relationship with the Birmingham City Blues for all. <clears throat> They're only down the road, local derby. When we play each other, we always get together. 
share kind of how we can support each other in the, in the communities. So it kind of opened up a, like an avenue, for, opened up a network up and down the country through that. Um, and that is kind of funded by the Football Supporters Association. It's a project within that and kick it out. So with working through AMWA, um, got more involved, wanted to kind of make a bigger difference. And what that, we set up a guidance group. So there's about 20 like-minded fans uh, representing various clubs, you know, Carlisle United, uh, Lincoln City, Crystal Palace, non-league as well, Port Vale. And we would just kind of get together on a regular basis and see how we can make the game more inclusive uh, to supporters and kind of what we can do to eradicate discrimination. And what that led to was kind of me being kind of nominated to sit as part of the the FSA National Council um, as a representative of the Fans for Diversity campaign. Um, so I was very privileged to do that, um, you know, just to highlight things further up the chain, get involved in wider football matters. So that's kind of my second hat, really, um, is kind of supporting that. And then through that work, I was closely linked in, obviously, with West Bromwich Albion. I helped kind of support on the equality diversity as like an external advisory group with the football club. And then through that, I got into conversations um, and then people started asking me, what do I do professionally? Uh, My background is financial services, kind of working at a senior level. um, And an opportunity became available to join the foundation um, was interviewed for the role, and you know I was lucky enough to be successful with that application, and which kind of led me to uh, head up operations and HR at the Albion Foundation. So it kind of falls hand in hand with the work I'm doing with Up and Albion, but also professionally what I was doing as a living as well. Um, so it just adds a bit more weight to kind of the contribution that I can make locally as well. So that's kind of the third hat. And there is the fourth hat, which I haven't mentioned, was um, I used to, well, I used to run um, a Sunday uh, team, um, football team, starting from like under nines, under eights. And I kind of fell into that through my youngest lad who was playing football, um, playing for a team which is predominantly Asian representation and kind of playing through the leagues and, you know, seeing the lads get discriminated against, you know, myself included as a coach. It was kind of painful to see, uh, but striving to, you know, to provide an opportunity for the kids to play football. So I coached at um, under nines and tens, 11s level, more as a parent than anything else, because that's what it's about on Sunday mornings. Uh, And then my lad wanted to start playing football on a Saturday um, in, in a bit at a higher level. Um, which was the Midland Junior Premier League. So got involved in Saturday morning football and ended up managing that team uh, on a Saturday as well. Uh, at that point, I did my coaching badges, level one, which it was, and put a new team together. And in the second season, um, with with another guy, Leighton, who manages the team as well, we actually won the Midland Junior Premier League in our second full season. Um, so moving that on, when I've joined the foundation, we've kind of integrated that team as part of our JPL programme. So I'm actually now on a Saturday coaching our under-15s, representing uh, the Albion Foundation in the Junior Premier League. So kind of four hats there. <laughs> um, football is everything, as you can imagine. You now football at work, football at home, football voluntary. So, yeah, 
uh, it's taking up a lot of a lot of my time at the moment. Okay, fantastic. So let's start with Abner Albion then. So Abner Albion is a fan group, and you said one of the aims is to try and increase lo- the local community attending yeah. West Brom games. So yeah. I'm I'm now I'm part of a similar group for for West Ham called the Bain Hammers and. I know and you know that there are there are various fan groups around, etc. How long has that now been been going for? Um, for three years now. So okay. we start. We've, we've been kind of things have obviously stalled with COVID. We're doing a lot of stuff through the foundation, but um, one of our first things was it wasn't necessarily about getting into stadiums. So we wanted to support the local grassroots clubs. So we know it's very uh, it's a highly political environment when you've got so many teams locally sharing the same bases. And under the Up Now Bin banner, what we managed to do was bring together five community clubs, each of which have got about six or seven youth teams under one banner. And then we connected with the football club and the Albion Foundation too. And we kind of pioneered a culture education programme to improve the quality of coaching uh, in the grassroots clubs, because the focus is why hasn't an Asian player made it? Is it about the players or is it about the level of coaching that they're receiving? So we attacked it from a coaching point of view. Um, so we worked with a guy called Dave Lawrence at the Albin Foundation, who's also an FA mentor. And we we run like probably once every couple of weeks seminars at the local temple where he would focus on different parts of the game, you know, like the psychological aspect, the tactical aspect, the four corners of the, of the FA model, basically. And that kind of got us through to get 10 level one coaches qualified from volunteer level. So that was a bit of a success story for us, I feel. And then while we were doing that, we were trying to engage the kids and the families. So we'd get them to involved in match day packages um, for home games. We managed to secure access to the West Bromwich Albion Academy Dome, opened it up to 120 kids of all backgrounds. Um, they came in, they had some coaching sessions, and then they went up and watched the game um, after the training sessions, which was a live game. Some of them actually made it onto the pitches, mascots as well. Um, so that was another kind of kind of direction we took. But the ones that we really wanted to focus on was uh, the key people in the family, which is, you know, the, the elderly, um, the mums and the dads and the granddads and the grandmothers. So we've hosted a few events at the Hall for once. Uh, celebrations to get more women involved in football as well. So we held an event probably about a year and a half, two years ago, where the chief executive of the football club hosted them as well. And he was rolling out tables, putting all the food out and everything. So that was a celebration. So we're coming out of it kind of from all angles, just to make it feel part of the fabric, really. Uh, and that was our main aim. And our focus is obviously getting people back into stadiums and getting more people feel comfortable going to games, um, i.e. with the chaperone or by themselves to enjoy the match day experience, really. So okay. that's, that's kind of a whole So, and what inspired you to start Abner Albion? Was it because you wanted to bring... The, the work you were doing closer to West Brom or was there was there another club or another supporters group out there that inspired you? Um, I think it was a number of things, really. I think when going to games, you'd see a number of Asian fans walk in. You know, they'd walk the similar route. You might see them before the game. 
and you'd always kind of acknowledge each other. It was like a like a respect kind of thing. It's like, yeah, you know, have a good day kind of thing. And then we just thought, let's try and bring it together. There were groups, um, you know, up and down the country that you'd heard of as well. But it was just trying to kind of bring it together and kind of talk about the issues. Um, yeah, and just like a camaraderie, really, uh, get people together. And I think what we found was actually a bit of resistance because the guys that have been going to games for like 20, 30 years, they don't want to be treated any differently. They just wanted to go to games with their mates and probably didn't want to be part of this group. You know, they just said, we're just going to carry on as normal. So we did feel some resistance from that where people wanted to keep the normal match day routines, which is fine. Um, You know, but all we want to do is try and get the people that want to go to games in a safe environment together. So that was kind of the, the reasoning behind it, really. Yeah, I mean, we've, I guess we've faced some similar situa- issues with the BAME Hammers. In there are some people that have been going to games for years and they're fine. They don't really see the need for an organisation like ours. But then part of it is you've just got to look at the local community and see how many blacks and Asians there are or what sort of percentage of the population it is. And it's nowhere close to being represented inside the stadium which is a shame and anecdotally we know lots of reasons for that it's like we've said before that in the past there may have been different issues and people did went comfortable at games they saw football on tv and then their support went elsewhere etc how has the club been with with what you guys were doing um, they were very supportive um, when we initially launched it. Um, sorry, they... sorry, I've got to let the cat out. Not something I ever thought I'd say on a podcast before. <laughs> See, this is what my daughter's room's like. There's a cat kicking around. I wonder where else there is. Sorry, she go on. No, it's okay. I think the club were very supportive. It kind of when it was first mentioned. So I want to mention a lady called Gerdy, Gerdy Singh. So she was very instrumental in pulling the group together. Uh, she was working with the club. She was also working at the foundation as like an engagement officer role. But she was instrumental in kind of getting the group up and running. Um, so she was liaising with the club. We managed to secure you know, uh, a venue at the stadium as kind of like a launch event where we invited people in just to talk about up now. And they've been kind of standing shoulder to shoulder with us all the way through our journey. You know, if ever we've, they can see the value that we add to the football club uh, and we work kind of in unison really. And I think as part of that, uh, we've got our West Bromwich Alvin LGBTQ um, support group, which is Proud Baggies. We've got a really good relationship. We work together. You know, we always support each other. So the club is really, really tied in into kind of um, with with their support of us. Okay, fantastic. I mean, one. So you mentioned before about Asian footballers making it or not making it through, etc. Yeah. And you've had success with the coaches and yeah. and developing some of those. Um, what sort is it? Is, I'm trying to think of the, the question without it being a loaded question. Um, is there is there an appetite from the club to 
to see an Asian player make it through? Or are they just looking at, in terms, just engaging with the community as best as they can, which obviously has benefits anyway? Um, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm trying not to ask a loaded question, but I don't really know how to. But it, what, yeah. what's, their, what's their thoughts on that? How much is the club committed to it, basically? So they are committed to it. I think we all know if if you're an earth a, a quality player, a gem, you can make a lot of money off that. So why would the club not be interested if there's talented players um, in the local community? Um, historically, within our community, I would say we've probably, at grassroots level, bigged up our players better than they actually are because they're used to playing in a certain level. Have they really gone out of their comfort zone to test themselves? And as parents, and you know, have we really kind of supported that journey? Or, you know, is it the traditional focus on your education? You know, are we driving them around on a Tuesday, on a Thursday, driving down to, you know, 40 miles away for a football match and actually watching them develop as opposed to using football sessions as a bit of a, a crash? So all of that kind of comes into it. But from the football club, they invested kind of, heavily in local so there was there was like a, a talent ID program which was called Soho Albion. So Soho is a district or a like a suburb in and around the Hawthorns. So they they've supported that with their coaching network. Um, you know, there have been funds going in, put teams in local leagues as a bit of a talent ID and how can they draw that? So I think the, the winning is there. Um, but I just think it's about kind of it's also down to us as a community to give our kids an opportunity to, in the right places. So the, the willing is there, and I think I'm pretty sure, um, you know, that, that will ramp up. You know, there's been changes at, within our academy. So there's a new academy manager that's coming, and I know they're looking at how they can kind of penetrate the local areas better. Um, I suppose kind of just to throw another hat in there as well, is I'm leading on um, on behalf of the foundation the strategy for equality, diversity and inclusion. And I'm working closely with the football club with that. The academy manager is also a trustee at the Albion Foundation. So we've got the ears and the eyes of all the people that need to know. And I think now it's about working together with a proper strategy about how we can, you know, get the next player to come through. Um, Jan is probably one of the the big names from the local area who came through the local academy, local London Good, you know, went to one of the biggest clubs in the world with Liverpool um, and is now at Swansea. So people in the local area can see an individual that has done well for themselves. Um, yeah, so I think the club is definitely there, but I think if you look at the, the scouts, if you look at the coaches within an academy environment, do they really know um, our community as well to be able to make that link? So when the coaches are representative of the local community, when the scouts are representative of the local community, they will then be able to understand. And I, I certainly think there's a shift going in that direction. No, it sounds very progressive. Um, best of luck with that. We interviewed previously Jazz Beer Butt. Have you worked with him? Because I think he was doing some work possibly with the foundation as well. Um, from the FA? Yes. Yeah, so, yeah, so I've got a... He's worked at the FA for quite some time and he leads on, he also leads on disability sport as well and talent ID in sports. He's also focusing on the women's game. So he's he's a, a board member or a trustee of the WBA women. 
So he's heavily involved with Dave Lawrence. So we connect with him through the foundation. But also we've had discussions outside of this on a personal level about how we how we move that forward. And he's quite influential in the local area through his work through the County FA. Okay. Yeah, curious. I know he said he had a couple of projects coming up. I don't know if there was a crossover in those projects in terms of what you guys were doing and if you were aware and if you could share, shed any more light on those. Yeah, so he, as part of the work he's doing with the WBA women, he's focusing on kind of the equality piece as well. So where I've mentioned that I'm leading that on behalf of the foundation, we are linking in with the WBA women and with the football club, so we're all, and the academy as well, so we're all singing off the same page. That's at its early stages yet, because I think Jazz has only been involved kind of, I'm sure it's like less than a year, so he's kind of just at the start of that journey. Okay. Fair enough. And in terms of the foundation, how long has the foundation been going on and what sort of projects are they focusing on? So the foundation is previously people know it as football in the community. So it's it's gone through a number of changes. So probably early 2000s, it rebranded as the Albion Foundation. So we do a lot of work with vulnerable children, children at risk of kind of expulsion or suspension from schools in terms of supporting them and getting them back into mainstream education. We focus on disability sport. We've got about 33, I think 33 is at the moment, representative teams at the foundation from blind football, women's football, um, amputee football, pan-disability football and general programs. Uh, We focus a lot through COVID as well in loneliness and isolation. You know, we've been getting involved in food parcel drops, which We've been doing for over a year. We're delivering over about four to 500 parcels a week to the local vulnerable community. But uh, the director of the foundation, Rob Lake, is very key in terms of making an impact locally. We've launched a new strategy, um, which we're in the second year of at the moment. We run a kicks program, which is kind of free football targeted at local um, the local area. So we're kind of sinking in with the local grassroots clubs and the local schools to get more kids playing football within a professional and organised environment as well. So I'm really proud to be working for the club and the foundation because they are trying to absolutely make that impact locally as well. And we've got influence over that so we can kind of share our expertise in terms of the barriers that we faced growing up or that we see now. When you when you say we, with. you mean up now, Albion? Yeah, as an individual, you know, like a Sikh guy that's grown up in the local area and having faced everything that I would have faced in terms of discrimination and barriers to change, um, you know, within a football environment. So we can surface those problems and have that conversation. And we've got the backing of our trustee board on that as well. So we've got a dedicated member on the trustee who's leading that piece as well. Okay, just out of curiosity, how... How big is the foundation in terms of how many people do you employ and how much of an impact, if any, will relegation have if it happens? So within the foundation, we've got, as it stands at the moment, about 70 contracted staff. Uh, We've got a casual pool of about 30 staff who support that. And then we've got a big network of volunteers that sit over the top of that. Um, so it's quite one of the larger organisations within football, uh, kind of in, in England. Um, in terms of impact, um, so what was the second part of that question? 
I was just I was just curious as like if the worst happens and you guys get relegated, so relegation, what, yeah. yeah, what sort of impact will it have? So you, when you when you're in the Premier League, I think one thing I've realised from working in football when you hear about parachute payments and everything, and you hear about all the money in football, I can see how that money is kind of um, allocated and kind of dished out. So it doesn't all go to players. Some of it filters down to the community um, organisations. And we deliver a lot of stuff in schools. So there's a lot of Premier League funded projects that go into local schools that you have to deliver. So the Premier League are adamant on that and you have to show the figures and you have to show the impact. You have to provide case studies around that. So it's not just about figures. It's got to be real. So in terms of relegation, because of the the vast range of programmes that we run, we would still be able to secure that funding if we went down into the championship Obviously, the longer you're in that championship, those kind of parachute payments kind of reduce year on year. So immediately, I think the way this organisation is run, it wouldn't have a significant impact in year one. You'd probably look in at maybe if we was two or three years into it, then that potentially could have an impact. But we draw on a lot of external funding away from the Premier League because of the success we've had in our programmes. So going through COVID, I think I'm quite proud and privileged that actually we're standing on our feet in terms of, so we're not heavily reliant on one source of income from the Premier League. It helps being a Premier League club. It opens up lots of other doors. But we're, we're more than just that because I think we've got a really good reputation for what we do locally and with the local authority as well. No, it sounds fantastic. Zee, Kevin, if you've got any questions, just feel free to jump in. Um, I was going to ask, um, about five years ago, I was at the Hawthorns uh, when West Brom hosted Delhi Dynamos. I think that was the first time an Indian Super League team played in England. Um, I was just amazed by two things. Like one was the fan zone that you had outside. And then also the players were led out by uh, the sound of the door, which is amazing because I've not seen that at a match before. Uh, did you have any uh, involvement in that? In, or were you had any, um, uh, yeah, just any involvement in that game? Uh, not leading up to that one. I think it was around about the time we were just going to get going. So if that was to be replicated again now, we'd 100% be involved in that. And I think it was it was an experience. Um, we've had we've got dedicated fixtures that we get for kicking out, and we've had uh, the door blasters. Everyone knows good Jaramal, who's one of the best door blasters kind of in the country. Um, he's always involved in stuff. He's done a lot. Of, the club have been really keen to get him involved with players. So the players have been <laughs> there's a bit on media from, from last year or the year before where the, he'd done some sessions showing the the players how to play the ball. So yeah, I think if it was to happen again, we'd definitely be involved. I think probably this time, just before last year, probably about 18 months ago, there was a contingent that came over from India as part of the Premier League and they visited West Bromwich Albion. So we showed them round. Um, you know, there was all the main clubs from the, the Indian Premier League that came come over. Um, so yeah, we would definitely have involvement um, in that kind of moving forward. And in terms of the fan zone itself, do you still do you have any like a involvement in hosting events there as well? Yeah, the fan zone is like one that isn't really a fan zone. It was only opened on um, like a few days. But on stage, uh, there's another group called the Bhangra Mashup. So they normally do pre-match entertainment and get people dancing and changing the light bulb and all the rest of it pre-match. And like I said, uh, Gujaramal and the Blasters have been um, to a number number of those as well. 
One thing that I'm quite curious about is, I mean, all three of us, me and Z are based in East London, Kevils in Northwest London. So we do have a London centric view on things. You've mentioned the fact that through the foundation, you managed to get, and Abner Albion managed to get 11, was it 11 clubs together and, or five clubs together and 11 coaches, et cetera. Um, I, I don't know what your experience of London is, but, is do you think there's there's more of a community feel in somewhere like the Midlands being away from London, where there is just it's just too, a little bit too big to do that? Um, what in London or in the Midlands? You mean in the Midlands? Yeah, um, I don't know really. I think it should be, it could be quite easy to be kind of replicated. I don't know. There's a lot of clubs um, locally. Um, and I think a lot of the fans from each of these clubs all kind of know each other. So it's just kind of, we've, we've just created a, created a network where we kind of support each other. People know each other outside of the football environment as well. Um, and I just think uh, it's that old north-south divide that we keep talking about. It's, it's just generally a different way of life from London to the Midlands as well. I think the other bit I'd just like to touch on, which I probably didn't mention, is that through the work with the foundation, we have supported um, football clubs and the football development programme back in India, in Jalandhar. So the, I mentioned about Gerdi, who was instrumental in setting up Albion. She created a link with um, a guy called Sunny Rorka. So there's a big, massive academy just on the outskirts of Jalandhar called Rorka Glan, and they do annual football tournaments. So we've sent coaches over there, we've sent teams over there, and we've got a still a big, strong working relationship with them. And I think just prior to COVID, because people in the local community here, they recognise that, that we have got a base back in Jalandhar, in, in the Punjab. So we've had people through the Up Albin Network and through the grassroots club saying, well, when we visit India, is there anything that we can do when we go back on behalf of the foundation? Is this equipment we can take over? is a kind of, we want to build that link so people recognise that link that's been created. So that's also created a bond locally as well. Super. Just on that, just on that, do you think the, the Kalsar Football Federation tournaments that are held mainly in the Midlands, that's helped as well to bring people together in the Midlands in terms of football? You've asked me a question there about probably the Kalsar Football Federation. So I've been in and around that through the teams I've managed. Um, the very good setup, you know, they they used to hold them in like in London, Barking, in Bradford. There was a few tournaments in in the Birmingham area, Leicester, Derby. You know, they have moved round, and I think um, my personal opinion is they're very well organised. It provides an amazing. So if you've gone to one of these tournaments over the weekend, it's like a, a festival of fun over the Saturday and Sunday. But I think the bit that we've missed out is actually what have we done as a legacy in terms of moving that forward in terms of the professional game. Um, and I think, you know, I might be speaking slightly out of term here, but I think egos have got in the way of development. So there's a lot of ego around that. The people that host these events, have, you know, they're all volunteers, they do a great job. But I think we've probably lacked that foresight and I think people's egos have kind of got ahead of themselves. So it's not as a criticism, but it could be seen as a criticism um, towards that to maybe certain individuals. But in terms of providing a platform to kind of uh, provide an opportunity, I'd spoken to the local FA regarding the KFF and saying, what can we do about getting some more 
visibility around this. Can we get the FA down to showcase the work that's been doing? Spoken spoke to local football clubs. Um, and unfortunately, I think that the feedback from the FA was that it's very much a closed shop. And they've tried to make recommendations to the committee. Mm. Um, and it, it's kind of... The, the committee at the time was seen as being not very open to change. There's a lot of, in this day and age, you've got to open up your doors to everyone. And it was kind of being seen as an exclusive club. And then the FA were reluctant to get involved because the doors were being shut on them for whatever reason. And there might be legitimate reasons for it. But that's probably the one kind of like criticism I have of that is that we haven't opened the doors for the KFF to kind of really push on from that. If that answers your question, hopefully. In, in a way, yeah, I, I guess because um, I have an opinion about KFF as well. I've, been know, I've known about it for the longest time. I think about 15, 20 yeah. years that I've known about it. Um, yeah. And been to and what are your thoughts on that? I share your sentiment in the sense that I think um, it is closed shop. I know they had the rule about non-Asian players not being able to yeah. play. I don't know if that changed over the years, but there was that no, rule. No, it doesn't. Place. It's very old school. And the other thing, we, we one of the teams from London, from Hounslow, they've done very well at the tournament. Um, I think they won like three out of four once in, in one year. So yeah. I think... The SS, yeah, yeah, yeah. SS, uh, SS Hounslow. Um, yeah. They've done very well. So I know some of the players that played in the tournaments as well. I know players like Netan Sansara and Mal Benning and even yeah. Dan Danda and yeah. all played in the tournaments at, at young yeah. age groups. So for me, it was like, there's a breeding ground when you bring people together. There's a, and this is eleven aside football. It's not five aside, seven aside. This is eleven aside football. So they're playing men's football as replica of what you're seeing in in the mainstream game. Yeah. The thing for me with the the Castle Football Federation tournament was players that I'll give an example. I won't name the player, but I know someone who was uh, earning more money playing in these tournaments than they would in a season playing semi pro football. So yeah. what they would do is just train and play locally, but they'll get paid good money to play tournaments. And I felt it was more of a, a bragging rights tournament rather than something that had development. I think it, the, yeah. the foundations of it started with good intentions, of course. Yeah. But then, yeah, I, I, I've had the same kind of thoughts on there should have been a progress with it. You set yeah. the foundations, you got the people together, you had this great network of clubs and, and players from across the country. Like, this is the ultimate network. And there's, like, how many teams? Like, 30, 40 teams that are playing? Yeah, so you 32 know, teams, eight section, four sections, let it speak. So you're talking how about over 100 teams, and imagine how many players as well. And, and you, haven't even, guys, you haven't mentioned the youth football and the girls' football that they did, so they are providing an opportunity. So in terms of even with the, the youth setup, that should have been, for, for me, once these tournaments are established and you want your kind of main, your kind of older players, your senior players, mm-hmm. to go out and play semi-pro football with the youngsters, that should have been the breeding ground to then yeah. showcase the talent that's in the community, then take them out into the mainstream club, then create opportunities that way. That would have yeah. been my route. So yeah. you then... One is, Jeff, yeah, I, I, I love weekend tournaments. Weekend tournaments are wicked, right? Whatever level you play, they're amazing, amazing events and get great memories. But they're only there for that weekend memory. What you want to do with the youth is actually showcase how you can get bring people together, take the best yeah. talent from there, and then look at what links you can create across the country to go uh, use it as a scouting platform to say, yeah, these are the best of the best and take them to 
clubs or make them wear to clubs and other scouts that this player is here. Um, but I guess the whole exclusivity thing doesn't yeah. really fit the remit for the kind of mainstream angle. And I think that there could have been some change and maybe there's still an opportunity for it. They've got the infrastructure, for my opinion. Uh, but yeah. I think there's an opportunity to to now become inclusive. I think I think that's, you've hit the name, you know, I think I use my words quite guarded when I use the word ego because that's what it was about. You know, it's like I'll win the most tournaments and I'll pay the most money. But what's the legacy? That's just a short-term goal. I managed a team where it wasn't just Asian players in there. It was a mixed ability, mixed background. But trying to explain to some of my players that I can't put you in the team because you've I've hit the quota of non-Asian players. So we made a decision not to proceed with that because how would we, you know, that's everything that we're trying to promote in the main game, but yet we're doing that ourselves. So I think that was shutting a lot of doors. And I think the, the feedback from the FA was that was kind of an, an issue for them as well, where it became quite exclusive. Don't get me wrong, they set up all the events. Um, and I touched upon about the up now being where we set up a grassroots program. Um, I know the guys from the KFF, you know, I reached out to them and invited them to the seminars. Um, and one of the individuals came along and midway through a session just walked out. Um, and it, it, it was just, that's, that's, that's the battle we've got. So, you know, we can try and challenge external views, but we've got to look inwardly and say, well, what are we actually doing to try and make that difference? You know, are we doing it right for the child? Or are we doing it because my ego is going to be impacted because it's going to hurt me? How am I going to look? And one of the things that we promoted is to be part of this, your ego has to stay outside the door. This is for the... And I think one of the positive feedback I had quite recently from one of the chairman of the football club is that I brought in a, like an impartial view and we've managed to bring all these teams together around the table where at least they're not competing against it. They actually want to see the good that's coming out of it. So, yeah, I'll, I'd agree with everything you said, Z. Probably wouldn't go down too well within the corridors of the KFF, but that's the reality of it, unfortunately. I, th- I, think, um, I think even with platforms like with what we got here, open, honest conversations what's required. Yeah. I mean, I pay respect to them, what they've done to keep that kind of tournament going and the organisation of that tournament every single year is, is massive. So you have to give respect that they know how to do infrastructure and organisation. But it's all about good practice for today's day and age. And we can hopefully, maybe, get a round table. Maybe Apu can work his magic to bring him onto a, a, a neutral playground and say, right, cool, let's see how we can take it forward. But I, I still think it has a purpose but yeah. not in its current guys. Yeah, so why wouldn't? So if you look at, there's a tournament that's held um, in Warsaw, so they have two tournaments there. Within a 20-minute drive of that venue, you've got West Bromwich Albion, Wolverhampton Wanderers, Coventry City, Warsaw Football Club, Birmingham City, Aston Villa, right on the doorstep. So why are they not coming? Uh, we invited some people down from the Albion and they probably weren't treated probably as well. And it was just a negative experience. So you can understand why, you know, that there's a hesitancy to get involved in that. That's what we need to try and change. Okay. Cool. Um, so the FSA. To, yeah, tell us a little bit about the FSA. So you've been voted onto the board of the National Council, right? 
um, onto the yeah the national council. Yeah, there is a separate board, so I'm not part of the board. It's just the, the council as a representative of the Fans for Diversity campaign. Right. Okay. And so, what are the goals for the Fans for Diversity campaign? Um, it's to promote to create like promote inclusivity and like kind of address issues to do with discrimination. It's more of an education piece. Um, so um, the positive thing about that, there's a lot of like-minded individuals who are professionals in their own right and through the power of football are trying to change um, and trying to help people that wouldn't normally go to games because of fear of discrimination and bringing these issues to the fore. Um, you know, a good example of that is football versus homophobia and the Stonewall rainbow laces. It's certainly, you know, that's been supported by the Premier League um, and the FA. So it's kind of putting the the issues out there to be discussed. Um, you know, there's talks about, okay, we haven't had an Asian footballer, but have we had an openly um, gay footballer come out and what impact would that have, you know? So we try and support that. But we also support other campaigns in terms of affordability and other issues to do with football that we have an opportunity to discuss that. The FSA do have input into the FA, so some of the individuals on the board are feeding into the policies and the procedures of the FA and, you know, their voices are heard within the Premier League. So it's like a consultancy piece. So whatever the Premier League and the FA do, they do lean heavily on the Football Supporters Association. They're the largest network of uh, supporter groups kind of within the UK. So that's a big voice of, you know, what we're feeling as fans. So as a Fans for Diversity one, it's just promoting inclusion and making people to go and enjoy games and, then feel comfortable to go to games. In a nutshell, that's kind of it. So Anwar's been heading that up, you know, since he started the campaign. And we've seen over the last 18 months, two years, with Albany included, there's a lot more groups that are coming to the fore, not just fighting for better football, but also issues in society in general. So one of the things I'm wondering is... How how much of an issue, I mean, I guess you can only really talk about West Brom apart from what you see via the FSA. Yeah. Um, how much of an issue is this? I mean, the reason I'm asking is I've been going to West Ham donkey's years. Um, and very similar to you, we, I've seen other Asians and black fans there. And even if I don't know them, I'd give them yeah. the head nod as you do, etc. And I know everyone's experience is different, but. Um, I think I've had one issue outside the ground in 40 odd years of going and I know other people have had some issues as well but that's been reducing so is it is it a case that listen we know that racism and homophobia all that sort of stuff exists but a lot of it is kind it's no longer overt so does that mean, or do you think that means that it football grounds are not comfortable for people or that there's still that perception and that's the battle that we've got to overcome? I personally feel it's kind of, there's a lot going under the radar, so it's bubbling underneath, so people won't necessarily speak out because because of the way stadiums are at the moment, you know, the way you've got CCTV around stadiums, but... But I have felt there's an undercurrent of it there, you know, the odd comment being made here and there. And I think what's what we've seen, certainly in the local area, is an increase in 
kind of hate crime, uh, race-related hate crime, which potentially could have been fueled by everything that went on with Brexit. So there is an undercurrent there, and we just need to make sure it stays as an undercurrent in a way. We focus on all the good that's going on because 99% of the fans are there to enjoy the game and it's a very welcoming environment. Um, just touching on the Fans for Diversity campaign, there was a there was issues um, you know that get highlighted quite easily for Millwall Football Club um, last year or the year before I think it was there was an FA Cup game between Everton and Millwall it was all over the news it was fighting and all kinds of chanting etc and then what Anwar had arranged was for us to meet with Steve Kavanagh who's the chief executive of Millwall Football Club to talk through kind of the issues that the club is facing and. To, to give him a sounding board of other kind of um, kind of options or things to discuss of how he can address the issues that are linked with Millwall Football Club, and I think that came again with with players taking a knee. So we all know what happened before the the game before the QPR Millwall game, where the fans were in the stadiums and they were booing people taking the knee. So we can kind of provide some support around that. Um, I think personally, I did think to myself, there wasn't fans in stadiums at my football ground. And I thought, well, if there was and the players took a knee, how confident would I have been that there wouldn't have been booing at my club? And hand on heart, I couldn't say that. I know 99% of fans wouldn't, but it's still in the back of your mind. So, yeah, I, I, I still think there's issues there. And that's generally society without getting too political about it. Um, but I'll mention it, the likes of your Boris Johnsons and your Donald Trumps that make it acceptable to make certain types of comments regarding certain faiths, etc. Is it helping the situation where it's becoming acceptable that you can say that? Some of the comments that have been made over the years. So it, it is still an issue. Um, and we just want to make sure it doesn't become an issue like it was in the 70s and 80s again. But there's a lot more tolerance out there at the moment. I think the way I see it, I think until recently, football clubs they hesitated when it come when it came to, I guess, being anti-racist because I think they were afraid of what how the supporters would react to that and the kind of backlash that would happen. Yeah. And I think that's changed in the last year, um, and I think clubs are more willing to to address those issues. Um, you just have to see some of the comments by some of the chairmen when the supporters have booed and they've very publicly come out and said, if you want to boo, you're not welcome. So I think, was it Colchester chairman wrote that in an in open letter to his fans and, and a few others? And I think probably 18 months ago, I don't think that would have happened. Um, so what's it what what okay what's it like uh, at West Brom? I, I, listen, there's always going to be pockets of fans that have issues, etc. Um, how long? I mean, are you a season ticket holder? Have you been going regularly over the years? And have uh, you so noticed the change? I think this year is probably my well. I haven't got a season ticket this year because we're not allowed in stadiums. But it would have been my 26th year um, as a consecutive season ticket holder. Um, you know, I didn't go to games till I was about 16, 17, actually, because I wasn't allowed to go for the reasons that we've mentioned. I had to sneak out of the house as a 17-year-old to go to my first game in 1991. Um, so, yeah, 
It, it is. I think, you know, like I've been going that long. Have I witnessed an experience? Yes, I have. I've heard shouts of like Taliban and other, other comments that probably, you know, I wouldn't really want to mention on and I wouldn't really like my kids to hear it. Um, my brother goes to games. My mom's been going to games. Um, my kids are season ticket holders as well, as are my friends and kids. So it's like an extended family. The people that we sit around have had the same seat in that new stand since it was made. And all the people that sit by us, we all like, we treat ourselves as family. You know, we don't see each other outside of the stadium. And we turn up on match day. And it's like it's like it's hard to explain, isn't it? Really, unless you you're, you're a proper fan. We've had a few incidents with um, away fans coming to our stadium. Um, you know, chant making chants, etc. Um, and I think what I've seen more and more is people around me um, shouting those people down, and they don't talk about it. So that makes me feel really proud to be the fan that I am and that people don't tolerate it you do get your mindless view um, but they soon get shouted down but that's more from me we're probably seeing it more from away visitors which probably happens up and down the country you know I travel away not so much now but certainly in the 90s and early 2000s um, I remember uh, going to an away game at Hull with where the Hull, we were right on the border by the, by the Hull fans um, me and my friend got targeted by the home fans and they were like referring to ethnicity in a very negative way. And then the, some of the fans around us used the derogatory words and basically said, these are our fans. And they used the P word, but these are our fans, these are our P's and you can't mess with them. And I was like, what do you mean by that kind of thing? It was really kind of, yeah. So I have, we have seen it. Um, and I think going to away games, there's normally five or six of us and, you know, four or five of us will be Sikh, Asian, lads walking down. So we're very mindful of our presence when we go to grants in terms of how we get looked at compared to other people. So we're just a bit more on our toes about it. Um, it's happened a couple of times. I won't mention the club's names, but we're just aware when you're going away from home that, you know, you can be seen to be different and get targeted for that. Okay. And re- with regards to taking the knee, etc., just remind me, West Brom still are, is that right? Yes, yes, they are, yeah. Okay. And have there been any discussions within the club as to, firstly, whether to continue, whether it's enough and what else they'd like to be doing? Um, and in either, well, I guess either your capacity as being part of Abner Albion or the foundation do you, would would yeah. they consult you or how how would that work so currently in the process of liaising with the club in terms of the whole the whole i would say agenda or how you know the equality and diversity you keep, keep mentioning it so we are we are seen as up now being proud because we've seen as stakeholders as part of that as as, as our other fan fan groups the main supporters groups and everything um, I'm currently working on something which um, obviously can't share at the moment, which is going to kind of support that agenda going forward. But I'm really confident and I'm really pleased that we we have an opportunity to be part of these kind of discussions. I think we all know the history of West Bromwich Albion. You know, people always talk about three degrees. You know, I've also heard quite recently that that can be seen in a derogatory way. Why are they called the three degrees and why are they not recognised as their individual names? 
And I never thought of it that way because I've just been brought up, you know, it's ingrained. I'm proud of the three degrees, but it was only after the passing of the late great Cyril Regis that it was mentioned and saying, actually, should we really call him? Why don't we recognise him for who they are? So, um, and I think even over the last year, two years, if you look at the team that we've put out, there's been times where we've had 10 out of the 11 players um, that are kind of non-white. Recently, in the last three, four months, one of our players has been targeted with race hate online. Um, and the club really came together behind and stood behind Romain Sawyers regarding that as well. And that was quite a swift and strong response in terms of there's no, you know, we're not going to tolerate any discriminatory behaviour. And if the individuals are found, they will be banned from the ground. So just for possibly some of our younger listeners who may not be aware, so was it 1977 that the Three Degrees first played together for West Brom? Yeah, so uh, unfortunately I didn't get to watch, I only got to watch one match of the day, but if you look at the quality of the players that came through and what they had to put put up with at that time. And so I'd like this to think was Cyril Regis, Laurie Cunningham and Brendan uh, Batson, right? Brendan Batson, yeah. So Cyril Regis was bought for about 25 grand from non-league down in Hayes. He was an electrician. Uh, Laurie Cunningham was signed from Leighton Orient, again, coming from London. And Brendan Batson, I think, came from Cambridge United and they formed a formidable kind of team that whole team in that era we pipped to the post for the league title by Liverpool because of the bad weather. I'm not bitter about that, but <laughs> it, it was just trailblazing and Laurie Cunningham ended up being signed for Real Madrid. I mean, and he's still revered there to the day. Yeah, yeah. So this was three black players in the football team, which was very rare in those days. And they were also, well, like you said, they... They were very, very, they were excellent, in fact. And um, I mean, several Regis obviously went on to have a pretty good England career. Um, Did Cunningham play for England? I can't remember. I don't think Batson did, did he? No, he didn't. I I think the other question is, if they hadn't been as good as they were, would we still be talking about our heritage in that way? So were they embraced um, for their colour because they were extremely talented? Had they not been, then, you know, so you ask the question, would we be having this conversation now about yeah. our, our heritage and how we, you know, we, we promote diversity? I think it's, I think the chance that West Brom would probably still be having the conversation, whether it be so well recognised outside, I don't know. I mean, West Ham, you know, had, were the first team in the first division to ever play three black players. So that was about five years before the three degrees. So that I know that's something that we as West Ham fans are very proud of. And I'm not just saying that so like me and Z who are obviously Asian, etc. But I know West Ham just fans generally, that it's one of the things that they will point to. Have you ever said to a uh, a conventional West Ham, I don't know what I mean by conventional, a white West Ham fan, West Ham's a racist club, that's one of the things they'd throw back at you. How can we be a racist club when we've had black players we're one of the first teams to ever have black players and and have supported them so yeah no it's interesting um and i think i, I can't remember which book it was whether it was pitch black or um, where they did talk about their early days and i think i don't i think i'm right in saying that it wasn't all rosy for them, west brom but 
they won the fans over, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think there was a, and I can't, it's, it's, my mind's gone blank on it now, but there was a game that was played and it's been shown on TV and it was classed as Blacks v Whites. So there was an all black team. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was a friendly, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It was for a, one of the testimonials. And if that was to happen now, then you'd be like, what's what for? <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. No, I do know that. I just, yeah, okay. Um, yeah, you're right. It, w- it wouldn't happen nowadays for, for many reasons. But, um, yeah, it was, it was quite interesting that they felt the need to do that back then. But there you go. Okay, so what are, what goals? I know you can't talk about this project that you've, you've got going on, but what would you like to achieve next? What are, what are the goals that you've got? either through Abner Albion, the FSA, or the Albion Foundation? I think what I'd like to focus on, kind of, from an, from our academy point of view, both the Boys Academy and the RTC, which is a regional talent centre for girls, is kind of working with, with the staff there and understanding kind of the demographics and kind of the makeup of the players that are coming through. And... Um, understanding what that strategy is and having an input into that and kind of trying to join the dots to kind of link them into the right areas because I come from the local community and and kind of like support that in terms of talent ID um, and development and having these honest conversations within our community to say, actually, if we want to be taken seriously, we've got to commit to it seriously and not just talk a good game, but also from the club's point of view, what is it you're going to do to actually make sure that you have got a, a casting eye over the talent within the area. And if it's not coming through, why do you think that is not, why is that the case and what needs to be done and how do we work together to do that? So that would be my focus. Um, I'm focusing on that and getting some data out regards dropouts, you know, which people are coming in or they've just been brought in because they've been scouted and then been ticked a box and then they're not progressed with but actually getting under the skin of that. So that would be a key area of focus. We do want to focus regarding like the elderly community because people listen to the elders as well, so we want to get them involved. Um, and then one of the key focuses is working with the grassroots teams to improve the level of coaching. So they are, as soon as players arrive, they're not doing 5,000 burpees and they're not running around the park 500 times and only getting one minute on the ball during games is to improve that that level of coaching as well. So that would be the focus, the next generation. Um, we've missed out on our generation, but let's make sure we've got plans in place to you know to support the next kind of the way forward, really. 